You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, April 25th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB Environmental Affairs correspondent Nathaniel Weinsaffel speaks with Professor Ben Kravitz about climate modeling and climate skepticism in an ongoing series about climate change in Indiana. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their recent strike against Indiana University. But first, your daily headlines. On April 12th, at the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting, Assistant City Attorney Daniel Dixon requested the board approve the partial demolition of the Johnson Creamery smokestack. Um, I'm here tonight with uh, John Zodi and Mike Arnold from the Hand Department and presenting and requesting uh, the board affirm the March 11th, 2022 uh, modified unsafe order uh, to partially demolish the Johnson Creamery smokestack. For some background, uh, the hand department uh, first started taking action on this property back around December of 2021, um, following some increased reports about spalling brick falling off of the smokestack and landing in the area around that. Um, At that point, the city decided that uh, under the statute, the smokestack uh, met the definition for unsafe as it posed a threat to persons or property um, and issued an order to repair. Um, That initial order to repair um, resulted in some additional studies by a group called RC Engineering, uh, kind of at the behest of the property owner and also city hand staff. Um, That report came back to us on March 1st, 2022, and revealed a a fair amount of additional information about the condition of the smokestack. Um, That report is also included in the packet, and I apologize for the length that that takes up. Um, But it is a very thorough report, and um, I think explains the condition very well. Um, Essentially, uh, the, the sort of bird's eye view of the report is... Um, the smokestack is is unsafe. Um, it needs to be reduced to a height um, not to exceed 60 feet in order for it to be stable to comply with code. Dixon informed the board that the city council and the Historic Preservation Committee already approved the partial demolition and explained the board's involvement in the decision. Um, and so this is kind of that last piece of the puzzle is to make this a final order. And to give some context about why I'm here talking to you about this order now, um, there are certain types of unsafe orders that um, do not require hearing before the Board of Public Works. Those are things like orders to repair um, or, or orders to seal structures that may be you know, subject to intrusion by weather or, or rats or something else. Um, those don't typically require a hearing unless the owner requests one. And then there are certain orders that do require hearings in front of the Board of Public Works for you all to have an opportunity to review them and either affirm or modify. Um, because this is an order to demolish, the Indiana Code requires that we present this to you and request that you affirm our order. Um, And so that is what we are doing tonight, and we are happy to answer any questions you have. Board member Beth Hollingsworth asked when the demolition would begin. 
Dixon said that AT&T still has equipment on top of the smokestack, and they are waiting to hear back from them about when that will be removed before they can begin. President of the board, Kyla Cox-Deckard, asked for clarification if the property owner would then be responsible for maintaining the height of the smokestack at 60 feet moving forward. Dixon said that they would. Before calling the final vote, Deckard thanked the city staff, city council, and Historic Preservation Commission for the diligent work that they did. I just want to offer my comments and thanks to the city staff and um, the Historic Preservation Commission and the city council for um, all of the work that has come before uh, this item has arrived um, at the Board of Public Works. I, um, of course, had a little sinking feeling in my heart when I saw this in the packet. Um, as you know, a Bloomington resident, I think it is a landmark. Um, and I know we all have different opinions on uh, to what degree um, it, of importance it has but I appreciate everyone going through the process to um, work to uh, make it as safe as possible while also um, preserving uh, what you know, character it can offer um, and nod to our history as a community. Um, I uh, look forward to this um, being resolved um, soon so that uh, we can move on to other things, but I just wanted to extend my appreciation to everyone who's done quite a significant amount of work up to this point to get us to where we are today. The board voted unanimously to approve the unsafe order of repair. The next board meeting will be held on May 10th. At the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission meeting on April 18th, Director of Housing and Neighborhood Development John Zodi shared that Commissioner David Walter passed away. I do have one less roll call uh, this meeting, and uh, David Walter as as all of you know, uh, passed away over the uh, last weekend uh, on April 10th. And so just want to make sure we acknowledge that publicly and remember David and his services are this weekend on Saturday here in Bloomington at 2 o'clock at the funeral chapel on East 3rd there by uh, the mall. So just want to uh, remember David and certainly serve the city for a long time. And this commission um, heard a proclamation from the mayor uh, on April 4th. And so just want to take take note of that and uh, that we will miss David and um, uh, not suffering anymore. I think it came faster than uh, a lot of us thought. And I know a lot of you knew David a lot longer than, than I did, um, but certainly a great guy that we'll, we'll miss. Economic and Sustainable Development Director Alex Crowley noted that the drone show at the mill was a successful event. We'd given a uh, right of entry to uh, the Combine to do a drone show. And for those of you who were able to get out there and see it, it was really cool. The, uh, first of all, the Combine was very successful this year. And uh, as you know, that's a longstanding program in Bloomington. Uh, it was at the mill. And I went to an afternoon session. It was really good. Uh, but this drone show was, was particularly fun and different. And I, I think it's the first time we've done it in Bloomington. So thank you for, for allowing them to do that. And I think it was a, a big success. Neighborhood Services Program Manager Angela Van Roy presented on the Neighborhood Improvement Grant Program. Van Roy said that HAND received three applicants for this funding round in 2022. The HAND Neighborhood Improvement Grant Program received three applications for this funding round in 2022. A five-member council was convened to review applications. These members are Roy Ayton from the Engineering Department here with the city, Nate Nickel from Public Works, Deborah Meyerson, a member of the RDC, Sue Tui, a member of the Crescent Bend Neighborhood Association, and Linda Woods, a member of the Eastern Heights Neighborhood Association. 
on Monday, April 11th, the council convened in a public meeting to hear applicant presentations. And on Wednesday, April 13th, the council members met to discuss projects and vote on funding rec recommendations, again, in a public meeting. Uh, by unanimous vote, the following neighborhood projects are recommended to the RDC for funding. She shared that applications they recommended to receive the grant funding were for Arden Place Neighborhood Association, the Blue Ridge Neighborhood Association, and the Prospect Hill Neighborhood Association. Commission member Randy Casty asked if the outdoor fitness equipment that Arden Place Neighborhood Association wants to install would need to be maintained by the City Parks Department, and if the cost of that was calculated into the grant amounts. Van Roy responded. Parks, those, um, that equipment will belong to the parks. Okay. So all of those are installed by the Parks Department. Um, the one in particular, Art in Place, with the fitness equipment, mm -hmm. the actual fitness equipment that will go there has not yet been determined. That's going to be happening along with parks and a okay. committee of two different neighborhoods that will come together mm -hmm. to determine exactly what they want to put there. So that one we funded at, a to at no more than $9,000. we are not quite sure exactly what the exact number will be. The commissioners voted unanimously to approve the distribution of the neighborhood improvement grants. The next meeting will be held on May 2nd. Up next, we have Strike Mike. Voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their recent strike against Indiana University. We now turn to that segment. This is Strike Mike. On Sunday, April 10th, a 97.8 affirmative vote by IU graduate workers set into motion the largest indefinite strike Bloomington has seen in decades. Every day that we can, WFHB's Strike Mike will bring you to the front lines of this movement, allowing you to understand the issues and the action through the voices of the participants themselves. Earlier today, Friday, April 22nd, Indiana grad workers and their supporters called a critical mass bike ride to spread the picket energy across campus and to reach the Little 500 women's race at the IU Stadium. While the strike is underway, they say, business as usual can't continue. We spoke with three grad worker participants after the festive eight-mile ride about the experience and the choice of tactic. I'm excited to take part in bike actions because they are exciting. They get people hyped. Um, it's really fun to see 75 bikes where everybody's uh, dancing to music, chanting together, trying to get excitement for our movement. Um, and the more diverse tactics that we can put together, the more kind of different things that people can take part of, uh, that will really keep the energy going. And I'm looking forward to even more things next week. And uh, yeah. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. Yeah, so there was a critical mass that we organized, uh, I think, 
around about 75 people showed up. So we drove around, occupied full lanes for a lot of the roads. We had like super positive support when we were passing the frat houses and all that. It's really encouraging to uh, like chant back and forth for like just wandering around town. Also, I would say it was really great to do it together and like the people with uh, like IGWC leadership, people who were keeping us safe and like stopping cars and telling everywhere to go and directing us, that was really good. And so I think it was like really enriching. I don't know. Like it was a nice thing to do together. I had fun. It felt like making actual progress, like as far as the strike goes and to like spread, spread the word around town. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to someone before and they were asking where we were going. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure yet. I think we're just kind of going around campus. But it was cool to like also go into the streets a little bit and get to see like town people and like go on, what is that, Walnut? Um, and like get the support from people sitting at bars or just walking down the street or in their cars. So that was, I think, really fun. And I think it helps to maybe bring the strike a little bit out of the like IU bubble, which I actually don't know how much the IU has a bubble, but it was a good way of doing it. In today's feature report, WFHB Environmental Affairs correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel speaks with Professor Ben Kravitz about climate change modeling and climate skepticism in an ongoing series about climate change in Indiana. We turn to Nathaniel Weinzapfel for more. First held in 1970 and recently reaching its 50th year anniversary, Earth Day is an annual holiday held to demonstrate support for environmental protection and celebrate life on our planet, with over a billion people participating in related events worldwide. This holiday has been extended to encompass all of April and what has been aptly named Earth Month. In celebration of Earth Month, there have been a series of news stories that began last week focusing on how Indiana is likely to be affected by climate change. Researchers have rigorously studied what Indiana's future will entail, and these stories will cover the likely outcomes and provide some specific context. This is the second episode of the series, with this one being based around another discussion with Professor Ben Kravitz, a climate scientist and assistant professor at Indiana University, who helps explain why we know climate change is occurring, which will allow us to explain specifically the relationship between climate change and Indiana horrific tornado damage. It just looked like a battle zone. To historic flooding. You couldn't see anything but water. Nothing but water. And raging wildfires. Got everybody out, but it's heartbreaking. The UN's latest, most in-depth scientific report on climate change warns the dangers are immediate and growing more acute. Climate science and the general knowledge we have about climate change didn't begin with the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The history of this scientific field goes back about two centuries ago, when French physicist Joseph Fourier first proposed the idea that Earth's atmosphere acted as a greenhouse and allowed the planet to remain consistently warm. Irish scientist John Tidal would later begin to determine what the composition of the greenhouse was through laboratory experiments in the 1860s. These tests found that compounds related to coal, including carbon dioxide and methane, were excellent sources to absorb energy from the sun. Three decades later, Cervante Arginas discovered that the decreases and increases in global CO2 levels could cool and warm the planet respectively. However, 
the connection between these discoveries and the growth of the industrial world was not made until the 1930s, when British engineer Guy Stewart Callender realized that average temperatures in the United States had warmed since the Industrial Revolution, and that the Earth as a whole is likely warming. Modern climate science has its origins in the founding of the Mauna Luau Observatory in Hawaii, which began to record atmospheric CO2 levels consistently since 1958. The information gathered at the observatory is depicted in the most famous of climate diagrams, showing CO2 levels rising every year since the record began. This is called the Keeling Curve. The Keeling Curve and the climate models that followed all sought to understand the relationship between the global average temperature and the different impacts humans have on the global climate. Professor Kravitz knows this topic all too well. His 15-year career began by solely focusing on math, before becoming interested in atmospheric science and how equations can be used to predict weather and understand climate change. Professor Kravitz explains exactly what his area of focus is when it comes to climate change. I tend to be really interested in physical climate. So basically, the way I describe it is when you push the Earth system, how does it respond? We call that radiative forcing and climate response. I'm interested in feedbacks. I'm interested in exploring the Earth as a system and how we can get strange responses when we do things that seem like they wouldn't elicit strange responses, and just sort of poking around and trying to figure out how the Earth system works. I tend to do a lot of this work with climate models because um, it's a really great laboratory where you can do strange things to the Earth system and not actually mess anything up. In fact, climate modeling can be a useful tool to test numerous theories about climate change. Some models allow the forcings, otherwise known as the impacts, of aerosols to be adjusted, along with the impacts of land use change, surface albedo, which is the reflectivity of the surface of the planet, as well as greenhouse gas emissions. For example, aerosols, when increased, are shown to cool the Earth, while a decrease in surface albedo is shown to warm the planet. Professor Kravitz explains how scientists know that climate change is occurring through the consolidation of numerous historical data points, as well as how we know that humans are definitively causing change. So we have observations that the climate is changing. So we have observations from space, satellites, from the ground, thermometers everywhere. We've had a good thermometer network since the late 1800s. We also have climate models, which are basically our best understanding of how the Earth system's physics work, and we can plug things in. Like if we plug in greenhouse gases, the temperature goes up. And we know why, because we can pick apart the different pieces of the model that are contributing to that. So we can plug in, all right, what have historical emissions done? Let's plug that into the model. The temperature goes up. If you don't have historical greenhouse gas emissions, temperature doesn't go up. So we have a, a bunch of different ways in which we understand climate change. And that's just temperature. We also know that as temperature goes up, the atmosphere can hold more water and it'll change rain patterns. And we can see those in observations and models. We know that as temperature goes up, sea ice will melt. And we can see that in observations and models. So there are many, many different points of evidence all building to the same conclusion. It is this conclusion that led to the United Nations founding the aforementioned Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, otherwise known as the IPCC, 
1989, which hoped to explain the scientific view of climate change to the citizens of the world and detail the potential political and economic impacts. The panel releases assessment reports every six to seven years, with the sixth assessment report being released this previous February. The creation of the IPCC inspired many governments worldwide to act. First, the Kyoto Protocol was established and hoped to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 5.2% by 2008. However, the United States pulled out of this agreement. Once again, in 2015, the world agreed to the Paris Climate Agreement, but the United States left the agreement and only just joined again with the new presidential administration. While this may be the push and pull of politics, time is running out. According to the 2019 Climate Action Summit, the temperature of, quote, 1.5 degrees Celsius is the socially, economically, politically, and scientifically safe limit to global warming by the end of this century. And to achieve this, the world needs to work to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, unquote. It seems that the world may be running out of time. With the aforementioned almost two centuries of supporting data and overwhelming endorsement by the scientific community in the already visible effects of climate change, why are there still so many people who are unwilling to act? Professor Kravitz explains why people may choose to ignore the science. You'd have to ask them. My personal perspective is that when I see all of this evidence, I understand that it's all pointing toward the same conclusion. There are other people who either cannot or choose not to do that. And I'm sure they have a good reason for it, but that's inconsistent with what the science says. This extends even to our state of Indiana. The state government has taken stances that effectively harms the efforts of environmentalists to stop pollution and hopefully curb climate change. For example, last summer, Governor Eric Holcomb signed House Bill 1191 into law, which removed the powers of local governments to enact energy regulations and prevent fossil fuel usage. Even individual policymakers have made comments that seemingly dispel the seriousness of the issue. Indiana's Republican Senator Todd Young once denied the consensus on climate change when he was a representative for the 9th District, stating, uh, We're often told that there is a consensus among scientists, and uh, I come to discover as the number of scientists I talk to and the num number of things I read, that's uh, not necessarily the case. Despite the opinion of Senator Young, there is a consensus on climate change. When asked whether most climate skeptics are simply uninformed or purposely nefarious, Professor Kravitz had this to say. In my experience, I don't think either one is the case. So I, I see very few people out there who are just straight up lying. Like they look at the evidence and say, I'm going to lie about it. For people who are steadfast climate contrarians, giving them more information doesn't help because they will reject the new information because it conflicts with their values. And so what I think is that going on is that there are people out there who ascribe to a particular worldview and climate change does not fit in their worldview. So they reject the evidence for it. And you see that sort of thing all the time in other issues. This is you know, basic human nature. But it's important that we know that's what's going on because there are people out there who are working on communication and building trust so that we can hopefully get 
everybody on board with trying to solve this problem. Do you believe climate change has been communicated poorly? Historically, yeah, I do. Uh, because climate change communication was basically left up to the scientists. And scientists are not necessarily great communicators. Some of them are. Some of them are not. I didn't get into this business because I wanted to be a communicator. I got into this business because I like doing science and I like computers and I like running climate models. And communication is a skill that I just haven't spent a lot of time on. Efforts are being made to better communicate the topic of climate change. One such method is through appealing to one's own metaphorical backyard, such as through a series of radio segments about the topic. How climate change will impact southern Indiana and the rest of the state is an effective tool to help convey the reasons why sustainable and achievable adjustments should be made to switch to more renewable energy and be more environmentally friendly. Tomorrow, join us as we discuss how the increasing temperatures associated with climate change will impact the agricultural sector of the state of Indiana. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsapple. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information available online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 